Uh, well, good morning, and uh, let me add the welcome that Andrew gave as well. My name is Tim, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and we've been in, uh, or in the midst of a series in the book of Daniel um, where we're asking the question, how, how do you live life when you're not in control? <clears throat> right, the few questions to me feel more relevant to the culture in which you and I live for a couple of reasons which we looked at last week um, in Daniel 1. The first, if the story of the Bible is true, then that means um, no matter what, what you think, you actually are not in control of your life. Right, Daniel's entire life, um, by, our, by our standards, has been ruined. He, right, he has absolutely no control over his life. He's been removed from his family, forced to go from the community, the, the nation he wanted to live in, to a nation and a community he did not want to live in. Um, his hopes for his life, his career, his vocation, they've all gone out the window. He's now been told where he's going to live, where he's going to go to school, and what his job is going to be for his life. And none of those are things that, that he wants. And while you and I might never have sort of that level of disaster in our lives, at some point, every person is going to feel like your life is out of your control. You're going to end up in a place you don't want to go. You're going to be forced to do something that you don't want to do. And second, a reason we began looking at last week, why, why you have to figure out how to live a life without control, is that Daniel specifically highlights in, in his book, in his life, what it looks like to, to believe in the God of the Bible and yet live in a place that does not affirm that belief, but actually pushes back against a belief in the God of the Bible. And so Daniel's been removed from Israel, a place where the government was all led by people who believed in the God of the Bible. The schools were all led by the people who believed in the God of the Bible. The cultural institutions and production, the art and the music, all produced by people who believed in the God of the Bible. Now to a place where it's not just that people don't believe in the God of the Bible, they're actually hostile. Um, the people who run the government, the people who are teaching Daniel. He, he is, his total world has changed from a place where everyone shares his convictions and assumptions. Now everyone pushes back against his convictions and assumptions. And I would say in, in a far less intense way, we Christians in our cultural context have, have gone through a similar experience in the last 60, 70, 80 years. That 60, 70, 80 years ago, most of the, the cultural institutions in the United States were largely led by Christians. The arts, the politics, the education, the higher education. But, but not today. Today we live in, in a much more secular world where the prevailing assumptions and, and cultural values are, are not just different than the God of the Bible. They're actually in some ways hostile um, or antithetical to the God of the Bible. And so we're left with a question in our age, which is how, how do you live a life of faith in a, in a secular world? That Daniel lived in a secular world, a world that did not believe in the God of the Bible, and so do we. And so how do you live a life of faith in a world like that? And that's the question we're going to ask today. In this text, Daniel 1, 8 through 21, even though we read verses 5 through 8, those verses sort of set up the story we want to go into this morning. But, but verses 8 through 21 give us a glimpse into how Daniel, in his faith, thought he should navigate this world that was hostile to his belief in the God of the Bible. And three things I think come out from this story that I want to pull out and talk about this morning. That if you and I are going to navigate this world with a life of faith, we, we need uh, to have a resolved heart. We need to live a yes but no life. And thirdly, we need to remember the story that we live in. And so even though this is in some ways sort of designed specifically for Christians to answer a, qu a question that Christians are, are asking. The reality is, too, this is a question that's relevant for, for non-Christians, because I, I would say a lot of non-Christians look at the way Christians interact with culture, or interact with the world, 
and, and see Christians often as hostile or angry or against them. And, and if that's where you're at, if that's what you feel, I would just say, I think Daniel gives a very different picture of cultural engagement than, than the church often lives out in, in our day. And rather than maybe dismiss the church or Christianity because of that, actually enter into the Bible with us how God would call us to live in the midst of a city that, that doesn't share a lot of our values. And, and the place we, we start for, for people of faith is that we're to have a resolved heart. The Daniel, he's in a precarious position. He's in a new school, a school that exists basically to whitewash his identity, to take his identity away from him um, as an Israelite who believes in the God of the Bible and make him into a Babylonian. Right? That's, that's the whole idea behind the name change we read about. That's why they're not going to call him Daniel. They're going to call him Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar means Prince of Bel. Bel's the God of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel means God is my judge. The God of the Bible is my judge. And so every time they refer to him, they're reminding him, your identity's gone, we're giving you your new identity. And so Daniel, verse 8, is the first moment we hear what he thinks and we hear his response to this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This word resolve, it's important. That, that Literally, the, the Hebrew word means there is, is Daniel set his heart. He determined his heart. The word means to pay attention, to stop, consider. That if you're, you're going to live out and have a life of faith in a secular world, it requires a thoughtfulness. It requires attention. It requires you to think out the implications of some of the, the, the realities in which you live and, and how you're to live in those realities as a Christian, which is what Daniel is doing with his diet here. Right, I guess this, for many of us, this, this is confusing, right? What does it mean that Daniel will not defile himself with the food that he ate or the wine that he drank? And a lot of people, because if you read all the Hebrew Scriptures, think that what's going on here is, is that in the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, God gave his people lots of rules about what they could eat and what they could not eat. And that was a part of being in the people of God, was you had a certain type of diet. Um, but that, that doesn't seem to work, that Daniel's trying to keep that diet, keep kosher in Babylon for a couple of reasons. One is that, that other Hebrew authors at this time, um, prophets by the name of Hosea and Amos, um, they said it's, it's impossible to eat kosher in Babylon. You just can't. You know, all the food sacrificed to idols, it's not prepared in the right way. You, you can't keep kosher in, in Babylon. And the other reason is that, that Daniel says not just he's going to re- refrain from food, but also from wine. And the, the Hebrew uh, dietary laws didn't require you to refrain from, from wine. And so um, Daniel is, is clearly taking a step beyond what's required him in the Old Testament. So what is he doing here? Well, I think what he's doing becomes clear that the more you, you unpack what, his, what he's doing in, in the story. That what Daniel does next is he goes to the man who's in charge of him, in charge of his school, um, and he, he asks that he could eat a, a diet of, of vegetables and water. And so the man in, in charge of his school, who the Bible refers to as the chief of the eunuchs, he says, he says this, in response to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king. I fear Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who's in charge. I fear him because who assigned you your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. This man, uh, the chief of the eunuchs, the, the head of the school, had given, been given a specific charge by the king of Babylon to get Daniel strong, to get him ready to serve the king. To serve Nebuchadnezzar. And if this guy failed, if all these students, you know, weren't strong, weren't intelligent, didn't do a good job, this man could be killed over it. And so he, dealt, he tells Daniel, no, I, I, you're asking me to literally put my life on the line for you. I can't do that. But, but Daniel doesn't respond 
in anger or in, in trying to, to go, um, um, you know, be dishonest against him. But what he does next is he actually goes to the man who's actually in charge of Daniel's diet, in charge of the actual food pre- preparation, and he says this to this guy. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and water to, vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel goes to, to another guy and says, okay, I, I understand you're the position you're in. Like you can't, we can't be weak and worthless to you. So let's, let's have a 10-day test. We'll eat vegetables and water, and if at the end of those 10 days, we're problems, we, we're clearly not growing, we will go back to what you, what you feed us. But at the end of the t- 10 days, we're, we're strong and healthy, then you have to let us keep eating that diet. So the guy agrees, and Daniel and his friends are strong at the end of those 10 days, and so they eat this diet of vegetables and water. Right, so this is all sorts of, what is going on here? What's happening? Um, because it's difficult to believe that, that it, we're told Daniel was, was fat, Fatter and better in appearance at the end of eating vegetables and water. And I don't know if you've ever eaten a diet of only vegetables and water. I've eaten a, a diet heavy on vegetables. Um, and I would not describe myself at the end of that time as fatter and better in appearance. I would describe myself as angrier and more death-like in appearance. <laughs> right, this is, this is not, tends not to be a diet that leads to human flourishing. Um, and so what, what's going, what is Daniel doing here? Now, I think what he's doing is, is, one, he's thought out the implications of what it is to be a man of faith in a secular world. But more importantly, he's refusing to let Nebuchadnezzar be the reason for his growth, his flourishing. That Daniel is going to flourish because of his God, not because of Babylon. And then, again, this is confusing to us. It's like, why food? Well, food was really important. Um, to, to them. That's why they often sacrificed it to, to gods. And you have to also remember Daniel's position. He's in, he's, Nebuchadnezzar is giving him a place to live. He's educating him. He's giving Daniel all his food. One could look at Daniel at the end of that time and say, boy, look what Nebuchadnezzar did for Daniel. Look at all the things Nebuchadnezzar did for Daniel. And so Daniel drew the line and said, I, I am only going to grow because God is going to bless me. And so I'm going to eat a terrible diet. No, if you're a vegan, no offense, but a terrible diet of vegetables and water only. And God is going to help me flourish in the midst of that. And similarly, if you and I are going, to, are going to live out faith in the secular world, we have to have similarly resolved hearts to think out the sort of life where it's clear at the end of the day, it is God leading us forward, blessing us, giving us our flourishing. And so what does that look like? What does that mean for us? Well, a couple thoughts quickly. First is that if we're going to have resolved hearts, they need to be resolved first to, to the scriptures. Right, there are places God has put fences Things that he's been clear that we're to never do under any circumstances. It's why we need to, to, to know his word. If you're going to live a life of faith in a secular world, you have to know his word. And yet, that doesn't settle all the questions. Right? There's not a law in the Bible that tells Daniel, don't drink Nebuchadnezzar's wine. There's not. Which means often, the settings we're in, we need to think it out. We need to stop. We need to consider. We can't just go to a verse and then apply it, and we have to, to stop and, and think. So that, first, we need to, to, be, to have our hearts resolved around God's word, but second, we need, we need to think out where our hearts must be resolved in the times in which we live. The Daniel's conscience was resolved in a particular way in a unique time, and we have to do that hard work in our own, our own culture. So let me give you one example of that. Um, that for, for nearly four decades, the, the Storman family in Olympia, Washington, Washington State, 
um, ran a, a, a group of independent neighbor, uh, neighborhood grocery stores um, called Ralph Thriftways that, that were part of the, the local neighborhoods. Like a lot of those grocery stores are going away, but, but Ralph's was still around. And so the Stormans are Christians, and they've tried to run their, their business in line with, with their Christian values, their Christian practices. And so that's why their pharmacies have never sold the, the Plan B pill. Which, if you're not familiar with that, um, uh, many Christians like myself think that um, the Plan B pill uh, are given to customers who think that they have um, already conceived a pregnancy and then the pill works to end that pregnancy chemically. And so, so Christians like myself who are pro-life, um, who think that every human being, no matter their race, no matter how smart they are, no matter their stage of development, no matter how old they are, every human life is created in the image of God, um, have, have trouble with the use of those pills because we think they may end the, a conceived new human life. And so that, that's why the Stormans have never sold that, that pill in, in their pharmacies. And up until 2006, that, that was fine. They were able to do that. But in 2007, the state of Washington changed their, their laws, their requirements, and started um, demanding that pharmacies sell that, that pill. And even if you have a religious objection to selling that pill, you no longer have the right to use that religious objection to not sell the pill in your store. And so 2007, the sermons were, were faced with, with a choice. And even though um, you could literally walk down the street and there were dozens of pharmacies within miles of their, their stores that sold the same pill, they, they were faced with a choice uh, in front of them. That either one, they could close their business, lay off all their workers, right, give up their, all of their hard work. Two, they can sell the pill against their conscience. Or three, uh, sue the government. So they opted to sue the government. That's the, the path they took. But um, just recently, the Supreme Court has refused to hear that case. And so right now, it looks like, um, unless something pretty miraculously intervenes, they, they have two choices. Um, give up their business or sell a pill against their conscience. So they've decided they're not going to sell that pill under any circumstances. So they, they have resolved their hearts. They've thought out the implications of their faith. And I would just say, if, if you want to live a life of faith in a secular world, in a world that does not share your religious beliefs, you're going to have to have a resolve. You're going to have to have a resolve. You're going to have to think this stuff out and ask, is it, am I willing to lose business over this, to lose money over my faith, to, to not afflict my conscience? And yet, even though there's a real conflict there, um, I don't want to stop there. I don't want us to, to leave thinking, oh, Christians, just look at our culture and say no. I, first, we need a resolved heart if we're going to live a life of faith in a secular world. But second, we need to live a yes but no life. As I read the story in Daniel 1, I'm struck by two qualities in Daniel. The first, throughout the story, he's seeking the good of others, even his own captors. Right? He doesn't demand. He doesn't play the martyr. He doesn't force his own way. Additionally, he's told no, but he, he finds a way that's more agreeable to the culture in which he lives. And, and even on that path, he says, let's just try this. Right? Let's try it for 10 days. And so if Daniel's plan fails, he, he understands. It's not just him that gets in trouble. It's, it's the people over him, the people who are are his captors who don't want his good. Daniel cares about their good even when they don't care about his own. He actually cares about their lives. And so this is important. And what you find is when you look, when you read through the Hebrew scriptures, um, there, there's lots written about this time where Israel lived in Babylon. And what you find is there were, there were typically two responses to the city of Babylon by the Israelite people. And the two responses go are right next to each other in the, the Hebrew scripture, uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 28 and Jeremiah 29 depict these two different Pictures. And so Jeremiah 28, you had the people who, who said, okay, that's fine. Babylon's going to force us to leave our families, leave our home, and go live in their city. That's fine, but we're going to live on the outside of the city. 
And see, there, there's historical ruins to this day where, where many Jewish people live. But they, they said, we're going to live on the outside of the city. We're going to pray against the city. We're going to hope for its failure so that we can go back home. And so false prophets in Jeremiah 28 actually rise up and start encouraging people in this, saying, that's right, pray against the city. God's going to destroy the city. You're going to get to go home in just a few years. It's all going to be over soon. But don't go into the city. You stay away from the city. Well, God, obviously, he hears everything rises up the, the prophet Jeremiah to respond to these people and to write them a letter. And he writes them a letter in Jeremiah 29. And the letter begins like this. It says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Remember last week we spent a lot of time on Daniel 1 verse 2 where we, we read, The Lord gave Israel into the hand of the Babylonians. That the Israelites are in Babylon because God wants them in Babylon. Not, it's not a mistake. The Babylonians, Babylonians are not stronger. This isn't, this isn't a, just a cosmic uh, uh, a mistake by God. This is God's plan. And the letter starts the same way. God is saying, I have sent you to Babylon. And so God goes on to command them in verses 4, six, four, verses four through 6. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. They have families, take wives, have kids. And then he ends in verse 7 by, by summing all of his commands to them with, with these words. He says, seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its good, you will find your good. I love the Hebrew there. The Hebrew literally says, your shalom or their shalom is your shalom. Their flourishing is your flourishing. Their peace is your peace. Your good is bound up in their good. And so Daniel is living out that posture, even though Daniel, um, Daniel 1 is most likely before Jeremiah wrote this letter to the people of Israel. Daniel is living out this seeking the good of his city, of those around him. And so if, if you want to live a yes but no life, first you need to seek the good, good of others. But secondly, you need to be spiritually bicultural. To borrow a phrase, Tim Keller uses that, that phrase. And here's what he means. On the one hand, Daniel will not assimilate. Right? He's not going to eat the king's food. He's not going to, be, he's not going to let Nebuchadnezzar be the reason that he flourishes. And yet on the other hand, Daniel, he doesn't separate himself. He's in the midst of Babylonian culture. He's learning it. He's understanding it. He's excelling at it. So much so that when Daniel stands before Nebuchadnezzar at the end of, of the time of this education, Nebuchadnezzar pulls all of this school together of, of probably Israelites and people from different, excuse me, from all over the world. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says about Daniel. And the king spoke with them, with all these students, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. The Daniel and his friends are, are the best Babylonian students. And yet at the same time, did you notice the name? The names that they referred to there. They still have their Hebrew names. It's Daniel, it's, Hazar, it's, it's Hananiah, it's Azariah, it's Mishael, right? They're, they're the best Babylonian students, but they're Hebrew. They're spiritually bicultural. And that's, what, that's the sort of life you and I are called into, is that we, we should be the sorts of people who are at home in the church and at home in the world. At home as people of faith and at home in a world that's hostile to faith. That's one reason why uh, we, we, we push the boundaries maybe a little bit musically, playing more blues music, that oftentimes when people come into church, the music's totally different than, than out in the world. 
Right? You come in, it's like, well, this is a totally different place because the music is, is different. And yet, one of the, the cool things of the Protestant movement, um, in the, uh, Martin Luther rewrote a lot of hymns, rewrote, or, or rewrote like common bar songs into hymns so that people knew the tunes already. They, they knew the musical values, and they walked into the church. It didn't feel so foreign. The lyrics were different, but the music wasn't. And that's sort of the, the image that, that I, want to, I want us to think about as we think of, of Christians living a yes but no life. We say yes in the sense that we seek the good of the city in which we live. We don't separate ourselves from it. We don't pray against it. We don't hope for its failure. We want the very best for our community. We pray for it. We want to say yes to our city. The reality is Daniel will spend most of his life working his way up a very corrupt government, far more corrupt than than our government is, a far more violent government than, than our government would ever be. And yet Daniel flourishes and works his way up, seeking the good of his city. But at the same time, Daniel won't assimilate. There will be moments throughout the story where he'll he'll say no. Here he says no to receiving a diet, a food, um, from Nebuchadnezzar. He's spiritually bi-culture. He's at home as a Babylonian, and he's at home as a Hebrew. This is where it gets challenging, right? How do we know when to say yes and when to say no? How do we know when to draw the line and when to refuse assimilation and when to... To say yes. Well, let me approach that question in, in, in three ways quickly. The first, God's word has to define our no's. Right? That where God has spoken, where the scriptures are clear, we say no. And, and yet, as I said earlier, God's word leaves a lot open to us. Right? The, when I worked at Starbucks, um, I, I just had a number of, of situations where it was really difficult to, to know how to live out a spiritually bicultural life. Right? So one that all, came up all the time was, when do I, how do I respond to a joke that a customer or a coworker makes that's offensive to women or to minority groups, um, how do I respond in that moment? Laugh? Give them a scolding look? Rebuke? Like, what, that's a tough moment. Like, how do I respond as a spiritually, in a spiritually bicultural moment? When I had a coworker ask me if she should move in with, um, with her boyfriend, how, how much of my faith do I share in, in that moment? When my gay worker came with me to, um, to church, what does it look like to be his boss and also have a conversation about a Christian sexual ethic? Like, the Bible doesn't like, lay out my conversation for me. It gives me big ideas, like important principles, clear rules and expectations, but there's a lot left unsaid. And so even though we, need, that we have to be centered around the word of God, I think we also need, secondly, a community to help us discern what a spiritually bicultural life is. Because right, we're not just reading about Daniel. Throughout Daniel 1, it's Daniel and his three friends, this community of faith that have worked together to understand and discern God's will in a, in a secular world. And so it's why engagement in a local church is so important to your faith and your nourishment. It's why being a part of even a smaller group in community, in, as a part of a community group, having more in-depth conversations about how you live out these things is incredibly important. Because living a spiritually bi, uh, bicultural life is incredibly diff- difficult. My guess is all of us have stories where we tried to think, how do I live out my faith? How do I work out my faith? That's what I would say thirdly, is that to live a spiritually bicultural life, you need God's word, you need a community, but thirdly, this will never be easy. I spent a lot of weeks, a lot of my time this week trying to figure out how to make this easy for us. And I said, let's just say it's not easy. Like there's not just the three steps you do to live a spiritually bicultural life. This will always be complicated because imagine with me you're you're in the old testament you're 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 living in babylon you're a worshiper of god and you see nebuchadnezzar bring all these students up in front of him and and you see him bring daniel and hananiah azariah and mishael the best students they're the best looking they're the they're the fattest in appearance they're the best students and nebuchadnezzar holds them up as the best 
of all the rest. And you're one of the people who have decided you're going to live outside the city. Well, you're probably going to look at those four guys and think they've sold out. They've compromised. They're friends with Nebuchadnezzar. How could they do that? Or the reality, this will never be easy. That separation, either moving out of the city or assimilating into the city, not having any difference, not saying no at all, those are easy paths of life. A spiritually bicultural life is not easy. Right? Separation is easy because if you remove yourself from the city, right, it's, it's, just, it's easier to be against the city. That, and I think that's why a lot of Christians have separated so much of their lives away from non-Christians. They don't know many non-Christians. They don't talk to people who are, are hostile to Christianity. They've said no to the culture and they've separated themselves outside the city into a Christian safe space. And they look at those who haven't, Christians who are trying to be engaged in the world, the Daniels among us, and often they think, well, they've sold out. They're too weak. They're compromised. They're not strong enough in their faith. And I would just say, if, if, you're, if you're a person of faith trying to live in a secular world, working for the good of the city, you're, you should be in difficult ethical spaces. Right? Someone within the church um, whose posture toward the city is only no, that's easy, or is only yes, only assimilates in, that's easy. But a yes but no life, it's, it's hard. There will be hard choices to make, and don't let that discourage you. Enter into the church community. Enter into God's word more and live into the tension that, that, that you'll always have with this life. And so a few questions for us to reflect on as, as we think, what, okay, are, am I living a yes but no life? I would just, a few questions. One is, is, how are you different from the city? But where have you said no? Where have you refused assimilation? Where have you stood against the secular world that, that makes demands for you to change? And then secondly, have, have you removed yourself from the city? How many non-Christians do you know? Do you pray for the city? Or are you just disgusted with it? Speak against it, but never pray for it. If you're going to live a life of faith in a secular world, you need a resolved heart. We need to live out a yes but no life. And thirdly, we need to remember the story that we live in. Remember the story you live in. At the Babylonians, throughout chapter 1, they're intentionally trying to tell Daniel he lives in a different story than he thought he lived in. That everything that the Babylonians are doing to him are saying, we run history, we're in control, we're the most powerful people in the world, and nothing will ever uh, uh, be outside of our, our control. And so your God, Daniel, is out, our gods are in. Your ways, Daniel, they're out, our ways are, are in. And, and let's be honest, that's the same thing that we hear as religious people from our, our secular world. Is your, your God is out, right? The, the spirit of the age is new. Your, your ways are out, they're finished. We're progressing towards a better future. Your ways are, are going away. And I just have to say, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of the people of God, nations have been saying that to the people of God since Genesis 11. They said it to Daniel. They say it to us. Every new cultural power, political power, national power thinks they're going to last forever, thinks they're the greatest thing that ever existed, and that your ways are backwards and are going away. But Christians, we should not respond in that moment with fear or trying to grab the cultural power back for ourselves or with trembling or lashing out or in anger. Let's remember the story we live in. But two things in this passage remind us of the story you and I are in as, as Christians. That last week we talked about Daniel 1-2, where we said God, it's God who gave Israel into the hands of the Babylonians. Well, that verb shows up two more times at the end of Daniel 1. God gave. All right, so, so verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God is the reason Daniel could have this diet and, 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 with, and, and separate himself in this way. And then in verse 17, it's, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in, in all literature and wisdom. 
So God's made Daniel strong. God has made Daniel flourish. The, the story is not clear. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in everything he's doing in this story, is trying to say, I'm in control. I run history. But in Daniel 1, Nebuchadnezzar is not giving anybody anything. It's only God who gives. God is driving the narrative. God is writing and ruling history. Which means you and I live in an increasingly secular world because God wants us to. Right? That's how he starts the letter to the Babylonians. I want you there to seek their good. That when God started this, this whole idea of a people for himself in Genesis 12, when he, he called Abraham to go to a land that he would show him later, he says to Abraham, I'm blessing you so you'll bless the world. And Israel, in many ways, had separated themselves from the world. So God puts them into exile in the midst of a city that did not like them so that they could seek that city's good. And you and I are similarly living. Unless you believe God's not in control of history and everything's out of control because he's fallen asleep or, or something's happened to him, it means you and I live in an increasingly secular world because he wants us to be in an increasingly secular world. And I would just say there, there are reasons for us as Christians to be thankful for that. Though oftentimes when Christians have all the cultural power, it's when we're at our worst. Now, I, I think if I lived in a day when Christians had all the cultural power, I, I would probably care far less about um, the way minority races are treated in our culture. I'd probably be far more dismissive and cruel to people who are gay. I, I would probably um, look at people who don't believe in Christ and think, well, they're just dumb. They just don't think it. They're not smart enough. Like if they just read the Bible, they'd believe... I, but instead, I've, I've interacted, I've had those conversations, and because I'm not in a place of cultural power, I've been forced to reassess and rethink a lot. And so, in some ways, I'm grateful for the secular world in which I live because it has refined my faith. It's made me think harder. It's made me resolve my heart more. It's driven me into the scriptures more. Whereas when Christians have been in places of cultural power, we've often, that's often when the church is most dismissive towards minorities or most um, uh, 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 failing at God's call to be for the people around us. And so that's one. All through Daniel 1, God's giving everything everyone. But second, what frames this story for us, the way you and I remember the story we're a part of, verse 21, it's, it's maybe the best verse in Daniel 1. It says, And Daniel was there until the, fir- the, year, the first year of King Cyrus. I love Hebrew narrative because it's, it's subtle. It says a lot without saying anything. And, and that verse is saying a ton. Because King Cyrus is not a Babylonian. He's a Persian. And so that, what that verse is saying is, Daniel outlasted his captors. The Babylonians will be gone before Daniel is gone. It doesn't say that. It just says, well, Dan- Daniel was there until King Cyrus was there. Which means Nebuchadnezzar isn't, and neither is Babylon. And friends, if we remember the story you and I are a part of, we remember that from the beginning of time, the most powerful nations have threatened the people of God. The Assyrians, we talked about them last week. The Babylonians are doing it here. The Romans did it to the early church. Remember, the the Romans killed Jesus, our Messiah. And yet the great kings who who lived, you can go visit their tombs. You can see where their kingdoms came to an end. You You can go look at the ruins of Rome, the ruins of Babylon, the ruins of Assyria, but you cannot go to the tomb of Jesus. And you cannot go to the ruins of the kingdom of God. That even though in this moment, Daniel 1, the kingdom of God looks like it's about to be snuffed out and the Babylonians are going to take it over, look at the kingdom of God today on every continent in the world. The church is flourishing. In the places where it's most persecuted, like China and the Middle East, it is flourishing. Remember the story you and I are a part of. We worship a king whose tomb is not empty. 
We worship a kingdom whose borders are always expanding. We worship a kingdom that says, we don't go out of the city and cast curses on it. We don't try to grab the cultural power back so that we're in control and we, we direct everything. No, we're, we're a people who's always seeking the good of the city in the midst of the city, whether they love us, whether they respond to us or not. And I, I'm not for a minute overlooking stories like the Stormans. I think potentially Christians will increasingly have to, to resolve our hearts to suffer financial loss or, or, or disdain from neighbors to be Christians. And yet I say that this is a wonderful place for the church to be in, to be, to be the one people in society who says, you know what, if, if the people we don't like in charge, we're not going to be the people threatening to move to Canada right at the end of the election. If our guy loses, we're moving to Canada and it's all going, you know, we're not going to be those people. We don't care who's running the city. We're going to live in the city for its good. Because we don't serve the kingdom of man. We serve the kingdom of God whose tomb has no king in it because our king reigns from the right hand of God even now as I preach. Jesus reigns. Let us pray.